0: and welcome to this sixth episode of our class action podcast series. This one's looking at the Meyer shareholder class action. My name is Damien Grave and it's great to be joined today by Stephanie Wilkinson, partner in our head office advisory team, who advises listed entities, <laughs> including in the area of market disclosure obligations, and also Justice Jonathan Beach, Judge of the Federal Court of Australia. Prior to his honour's appointment in 2014, Justice Beach was a barrister of the Victorian bar practicing for 27 years in commercial law and extensively in class actions from the mid nineties. His honor is a leading commercial judge and has also heard and determined many class action related issues and was the trial judge in the Maya decision, being the first shareholder class action in Australia to proceed to judgment. Welcome to you both. And it's great that you're able to join for this session. The purpose of our podcast series is just to spend a little bit of time unpacking and discussing some of the current class action issues you might be seeing in the market and also being discussed in the media. Today, we're going to change tack a little and take a deeper dive into the topic of shareholder class actions and some of the issues arising from the recent Maya shareholder class action. The decision in Maya was delivered by Justice Beach on the 21st of October, 2019 and was, as I just mentioned before, the first shareholder class action to proceed to judgement in Australia. It covered a lot of ground and we'll only seek to draw on a few aspects of interest in what is a full agenda today and we'll do our best to move through it. Perhaps I might set the scene a little in terms of the landscape for shareholder class actions to date in the Australian market and then introduce the Maya decision. Australia has had a class action procedure for just over 28 years when it was first introduced into Australian law in 1992. Based on the empirical analysis of Professor Morabito, as set out in one of his recent reports, there have been approximately 122 shareholder class actions in the period to the end of June 2019, affecting 63 companies or groups of companies. Shareholder class actions have typically attracted litigation funders to fund the progress of those actions. To give a sense of this dimension, the Australian Law Reform Commission noted in its recent report that all shareholder class actions commenced in the federal court in the five years from 2013 to 2018 were funded by a litigation funder. Justice Speech, before we turn to the facts in Meyer, you have been involved in class actions now as a practitioner and a judge for some time. Are there any particular aspects of the current landscape and in how these cases either evolve or are managed by the court that you were able to share some thoughts on.
1: Uh, Thanks, Damien. Since I joined the federal court in 2014, there have been many significant changes to how class actions have been managed. First, you have had specialist judges appointed to manage these cases, such as myself, John Middleton, Bernard Murphy, and Michael Lee. Second, as a result, you have had dynamic procedures adopted concerning the running and funding of these cases to the advantage of all participants, and I might say access to justice generally. Third, the sophistication with which the profession on all sides runs these cases today is very impressive, particularly when one compares them with what I'll describe as the old millennium ways. Fortunately, today, the profession has moved beyond the unsophisticated approach in shareholder class actions of simply identifying a share price fall then assuming a non disclosure of material information and then issuing straight away in some what I'll describe as race to the palace. Due to the expertise of the profession and the discipline imposed by litigation funders, uh, today, uh, from what I can observe, much more rigour has now been imposed.
0: Thank you, Justice Beach. Perhaps I might just turn now to, to, to Maya itself and the facts I know. Uh, reasonably well known but it was a case brought by the named applicant tpt patrol for itself on behalf of persons who acquired shares in Maya holdings limited in the period between 11 september 2014 and 19 march 2015. there were allegations that Maya contravened its continued disclosure obligations under section 674 of the corporations act and also engaged in misleading and deceptive conduct under Section 1041 Capital H of the Corporations Act. As matters evolved prior to and during trial, the lead applicant's claim ultimately centred on statements made by Myer's CEO during calls with equity analysts and financial journalists on 11 September 2014, following the release of Myer's FY14 results announcement. Myer's practice at that time was not to issue earnings guidance At a board meeting on 10 September 2014 Myers directors resolved consistently I should say with the company's practice at the time not to provide earnings guidance for FY15. A draft ASX announcement which contained earnings guidance was also amended to remove the reference to earnings guidance. Despite this Myers CEO publicly represented through statements he made on the results calls with analysts that in his opinion Maya's net profit after tax for FY15 would likely exceed its FY14 NPAT of 98.5 million. If we move forward six months to 19 March 2015, Maya announced that its NPAT for FY15 would likely be in the range of 75 million to 80 million, excluding one-off costs. After the announcement, Maya's share price fell materially it was alleged that by making the FY15 impact forecast in September 2014 and failing to correct it, Meyer engaged in misleading or deceptive conduct and breached its continuous disclosure obligations under the Corporations Act. Stephanie, perhaps we might pass to you to let us know what was the decision of the court in broad terms and also some thoughts as to how corporates approach the topic of guidance.
2: Thanks, Damien. So, in summary, the court found that the statements or the representations made by the CEO during the analyst call on 11 September 2014 were de facto guidance. There were reasonable grounds for those CEOs' representations. However, Maya's continuous disclosure obligations were engaged when, at various later points in time, Maya became aware that its earnings would be materially different to the CEO's representation that FY15 NPAT. Would likely exceed FY14 NPAT. In addition, from 21 November 2014, which was the date of Myers AGM, until 19 March 2015, Myers breached its continuous disclosure obligations and engaged in misleading or deceptive conduct by failing to correct the 11 September 2014 representation at various intervals. Despite Myers' contraventions, the breaches by the company may not have caused any loss to shareholders. Meyer's expectation as to its NPAT during the period prior to 19 March 2015 was either above or not materially different from the Bloomberg consensus figure. As the market had already factored in a lower earnings outlook, there was no evidence before the court that the company's breaches caused loss to shareholders. On 19 March 2015, the market price for Maya Securities fell, not because the company revealed that it would not meet the NPAP forecast made on 11 September 2014, but because the announced guidance was below analyst consensus. On the topic of guidance, the court considered that the CEO's statements or representations were de facto earnings guidance by Maya. The CEO's verbal statements were specific enough to constitute earnings guidance. In fact, forecasts don't need to be numerical. Statements such as more than last year are sufficient to constitute de facto guidance. Companies have a positive obligation to update guidance even if analysts have disregarded the guidance when it was given, or consensus is in line with the company's own expectations, and the current share price is where the company thinks it should be.
0: Thanks Stephanie. Just the speech you have thought quite a lot about guidance I know and how that concept interrelates with market consensus and you say at one point in your judgment that I don't accept that consensus was the sufficient benchmark to assess materiality and Myers continuous disclosure obligations. Are you able to perhaps develop some of your thinking in this area?
1: Let me go back a little just so what everybody knows, which is that Section 674 and Listing Rule 3.1 require the disclosure of material information that is not generally available, and for the purposes of the present discussion, put to one side the Listing Rule 3.1a exceptions. Now, the legal test for materiality is whether a reasonable person would expect the information to have a material effect on the price or value of the securities. And undoubtedly, Section 677 of the Corporations Act as relevance in that context, of course. In Maya, I said that the information not disclosed was Maya's forming of opinions on the 21st of November, 2014, and thereafter that NPAT for 2015 would be under the 2014 NPAT, which was contrary to Mr. Brook's statement on 11 September, 2014, that the 2015 NPAT would be above the 2014 NPAT now, Meyer argued that such disclosure was not required because market consensus had already discounted Mr. Book's statement. It said that market consensus for NPAT was at the lower figures anyway. And in this context, it put forward market consensus as a proxy for market expectation. But I held that the test for materiality is not just a comparison between the company's own internal forecasts and market expectation the proxy for which in this case was put as the Bloomberg consensus estimates. That was the position put by Meyer, which I rejected. What was significant in this case was Mr. Book's statement as CEO on the 11th of September, 2014, concerning the 2015 NPAT. In my view, he and accordingly Meyer gave de facto earnings guidance, although perhaps the label does not matter. So when Meyer's own internal forecasts Diverged materially from Mr. Brooks' statement, I found that Meyer ought to have disclosed the new position. So, materiality involved a comparison between Mr. Brooks' statement and Meyer's later internal forecasts. Now, if Mr. Brooks had not made his statement, then you would have had a different position. Then you may look at the divergence between a company's internal forecasts and market consensus or expectation. But even if there is divergence, query whether the company who has not given guidance nevertheless needs to go out there and tell the analysts that they are wrong. Anyway, uh, in the Maya case, I was not dealing with that type of scenario.
2: Thanks, Justice Beach. Another sort of question that I'm interested um, in terms of the decision and around materiality, in particular, was the discussion around 5% as the measure for materiality in this case. At the time of the Maya events, the ASX Guidance Note 8 provided some guidance on materiality and suggested for companies that have provided guidance, greater than 10% should be presumed material, but for very large entities that have provided guidance, a materiality threshold closer to 5% may be appropriate. At the time, Maya was not a very large listed entity. However, you found uh, in this case that the 10% threshold was not the correct threshold but rather a decline of 5% or more would have been material. In particular, the context of decline in profits needed to be considered. Interestingly, following the judgment, ASX has now updated its guidance note 8 so that entities in the ASX 300 should consider applying a materiality threshold closer to 5% than 10%. So a 5% threshold is recommended now to a broad group of ASX companies. I think we may have lost some of the context of your judgment, and having spent significant time considering materiality in the case, I'm interested in your views on materiality and wondered whether you'd be able to share some of your thoughts in that area.
1: If I might so so, Stephanie, that's an excellent question. Um, the quantitative materiality question, where there was a decline of less than 10%, but more than 5%, was a difficult one which to me was a contextual question. Now, the fact that Maya was not very large and had some volatility in earnings, perhaps might've suggested a 10% figure. The context here was all important. And I would make uh, four points. First, Mr. Brooks had represented a higher impact for the 2015 year as compared with 2014. So in my view, something lower than the 2014 impact, indeed at or more than 5%, is material, and I'd stress this, in the context of the statement that he made. Second, at the start of the financial year, that started at the end of July, 2014 from recollection, and given the greater uncertainty for the full year estimate closer to the start of the financial year, you might have allowed a higher percentage But once you got through to the end of November and into December of 2014, some of the uncertainty was being reduced, suggesting a lower figure for materiality because of a reduction in volatility. I did accept though that the Christmas period results for Maya were at that stage not in. The third point I would make is that materiality in the context with which I was dealing with matter also could be seen at the 5% level because it confirmed, importantly for me, a pattern of decline in Myers' profit performance over some years. In other words, the pattern uh, independently uh, had some level of uh, materiality. The fourth point I would make is that it shouldn't be forgotten that in reality, in telling the facts before me, the divergence that I was looking at was not precisely five percent but was something more than this mr brooks in september 2014 had in effect represented that the impact for 2015 was going to be and i considered it to be implicitly material in his statement that it was to be materially above 98.5 million but in fact myers internal forecast as of 9 december 2014 was 92 million dollars and its later forecasts went further south after that. So, yes, you're under 10%, but you're well under 5% if you do the basic arithmetic.
2: Thank you, Your Honour. Um, applying the learning from the case in a practical sense as well, obviously 21 November 2014 was the first date when Maya disclosure obligation crystallised, and this was the date of Maya's AGM. I'd like to think that it wasn't a coincidence that this date was chosen because it's a natural time to update the market. In practice, one area that companies often struggle with is the decision about when information becomes sufficiently certain. And in the current COVID-19 environment, with so much uncertainty, it's particularly hard at the moment. For a long time, we've encouraged our clients to really think about using scheduled announcements such as the AGM, full year reporting, for example, to bring forward disclosure and update the market on developing issues, or what we call vaccinate the market." Justice Beach, how important do you think these types of scheduled announcements are for helping companies generally manage their disclosure obligations?
1: Let me just, uh, for the moment, uh, go back to the facts of the Maya case and let me make a few points about uh, my selection of the 21st of November 2014. First, the day before, a draft forecast for impact for 2015 of $90 million had been produced to be compared with something north of 98.5 million which was what mr books had represented second two days before the agm there had been a board meeting where the cfo had reported that impact for the year to date so we were in the 2015 financial year was 11.2 million dollars below the previous year and 9.7 million dollars below budget third uh it's important to note that the Bloomberg consensus around the time of the AGM was around 91 million dollars, again well south of 98.5 million or more for that. So as at the time of the AGM, I inferred that Meyer's view at that stage was that the impact for 2015 was not likely to be above 2014. Now in my view the AGM was a natural if not obvious time to update the market That is particularly so where the Chairman was making express remarks about the 2015 year and what was to be expected for the rest of that financial year. More generally, to me, to use scheduled times to make disclosure, including perhaps to bring forward disclosure, is wise counsel. It is particularly the time when shareholders and the market are paying attention. Indeed, that is why I gave considerable weight to the significance of Mr Brooks making his statement on the 11th of September 2014. That was the very day on which the 2014 full-year results were announced. Everyone was paying attention.
0: Thank you, Justice Beach. A further important aspect of the judgment involves the court's consideration of the appropriate method for measuring and proving loss in these types of cases. Until the decision in Maya, there was not really any judicial guidance on this topic. Justice Beach, perhaps starting with the role of expert evidence and its, and its assistance to the court in these types of cases, would you be able to offer some thoughts on that based on Maya and your experience more broadly?
1: I would say, Damien, that there has been a changing emphasis given to expert evidence and its significance in commercial cases, but to one side for the moment, patent cases. Now, some judges like using special referees, although it seems to me that that's very much a Sydney thing. My preference is not to use referees. I like to hear from the experts so that I can prod and poke them a bit. I can road test my ideas. And if I have misunderstood something, then this will soon be corrected before the trial is over. Further, in shareholder class actions, I do not see how you can sensibly uh, deal with and send out event study analysis to referees when such analysis is inextricably tied into quantitative materiality and loss and damage as for the expense involved with experts we are here dealing with class actions in my view the expense relative to the number of claims of group members and the total quantum involved is easily justifiable
0: thank you Justice the you, you, you touched on in your comments a moment ago Um, a reference to event study analysis which um, in your judgment you refer to as being particularly important to assessing materiality and share price inflation Are, are you able to share some thoughts about that form of analysis and its importance to the court
1: well for materiality as we all know you have what i would describe as two types of questions qualitative questions and quantitative questions let me deal with the latter Quantitative materiality and share price inflation do require event studies. They are difficult to avoid, particularly where you have a case where what is involved is a longer time frame of non-disclosure and where the information said not to have been disclosed is changing over time, say because some of the adverse information is seeping into the marketplace and then slightly factoring into the market price for these securities. But in my view for event studies, ideally, You only need one expert for each party. Further, the disputes, hopefully, should be limited, particularly concerning what I'll uh, categorise as methodological questions. Disputes, in my view, should be more about assumptions rather than undergraduate statistical theory. Now, in Maya, I wrote more than usual because this was really the first case. But hopefully, in the future, more can be agreed indeed perhaps one day a standard model for such statistical analysis can be adopted for all cases of this type that might reduce the need for complex statistical analysis down to a question of more basic arithmetic and the less uh, need for or reliance upon experts
0: thank you justice Speech. we might change tack from Maya just a bit um with, with a final question from me um th- there's been a lot of discussion about law reform recently particularly In the context of the recent Australian Law Reform Commission report but also more recently in the context of the Parliamentary Joint Committee. If you were to nominate an aspect of class-action law and procedure most in need of reform whether by legislation or court innovation what would it be and why?
1: Let me say at the outset in answer to your question Damien that uh, to me law reform debate is very welcome but in my view, it should be evidence-based rather than fueled with rhetoric or ideology. One thing is clear though, courts should be given more express powers to deal with funding agreements. The other point I would make concerning legislative reform is simply that, that less is more. In this respect, too much regulation would impose unnecessary rigidity with unintended consequences. Further, court processes in this area since I joined the federal court in 2014 and become much more dynamic. Prior to that time, the procedures were, frankly, wooden. Damien, I don't want to be too prickly about this. It may be more desirable to allow the dynamics flowing from the court's more up-to-date processes to play out over the next few years, rather than to impose any so-called solution now, particularly one tailored only to the current short-term exigencies. But I should say that, in my view, what can be justified now. Is a recasting of Section 33ZF so that courts are given the necessary express powers to deal with funding agreements and common fund orders. Indeed, this is what the Australian Law Reform Commission has recommended. As for the licensing and corporate regulation of funders, that is a policy question that has little directly to do with the courts. Others can debate the necessity of that. Of course, courts will have to observe any indirect effects of such regulation and may have to deal with those.
0: Thank you, Justice Beach. We, we might leave it there for today, Justice Beach and Stephanie.
1: Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Damien, to participate.
0: No, it's been a great discussion and we could have spent a while on each of these topics. Thank you to both of you for sharing your thoughts and insights today. Thank you in particular to you, Justice Beach, for taking the time from your busy commitments to so generously contribute. It's been a real privilege to have you join with us today. Thank you also to our clients for the opportunity to discuss these issues with you. It's our privilege to work with you and assist you as you face some of these issues. We hope you found this a helpful discussion today. Please join us for the next episode in a couple of weeks where some of our colleagues will discuss the current class action issues in the market. Until then, stay safe everyone and thank you.